Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, started off with the traditional links I liked. A um, couple of things here. One, so a couple of good articles on humanitarian issues. There's a sort of general trends piece on what we're expecting to see in terms of humanitarian response in 2020. And then a great piece from Hugo Slim, who writes absolutely beautiful pieces for the uh, the Red Cross, International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. This one is, is reflecting on the retreat from charisma, <coughs> talking about how in the good old days, uh, humanitarian response was led by charismatic individuals taking crazy risks, doing brave things, and it's become professionalized and bureaucratized. And although there's some clear reasons for that in terms of scale and professionalism, there are some losses as well. And that's a really nice reflection from Hugo on that one. Uh, another nice piece, the LSE Impact blog, which is a great blog, I think. I recommend it to people. They just put up their, their most popular post of the decade, of the, of the teens. And the number one was How Academia Resembles a Drug Gang, which is a lovely sort of piece but about how in academia, rather like in drug gangs, you have a few very uh, high-earning capos at the top, and then this enormous army of expendable soldiers in drug gangs, um, um, postdocs in academia. So that obviously hit a nerve and got a lot of hits. Um, then the next couple of posts were the results of I've started doing a lot of uh, some reading around how change happens in the UK, processes in the UK, wondering whether to do a project on something along the lines of how change happens in the UK and having some very interesting conversations. So one of them was, one, one of the, the first posts on this was about community wealth building, um, which is an idea which has really caught on at municipal level, at local government level in, in, in a number of towns and cities in the UK, developed uh, and promoted by something called the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. And it says that you need to think about the local economy and how you pump connections and density and capital and better employment practices into a local economy. Um, and one of the ways is, is to identify anchor institutions. So these are the big institutions which have a sort of large footprint in a local community. So in the UK, they would typically be things like hospitals, universities, maybe schools, um, so they're, they're basically public sector institutions, largely, um, and they have very big local impact. So if you can get that anchor institution to say, we're going to preferentially buy local, we're going to preferentially employ local, we're going to give preference to small and medium enterprises which are more local, um, we're going to, you know, you can do a whole bunch of things which kind of pump resources into the local economy, and alongside that you support local forms of uh, capital accumulation, sort of um, credit banks and, and community banks. And you can start to have something which looks rather like an industrial policy at local level. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, people have been talking about in terms of how did the Asian tigers take off. Um, but let's do it at city level or even, you know, uh, town level. Um, and when you talk about this community wealth building thing, all roads lead to Preston. So, yeah, it just keeps coming up in all the things I'm reading about what, you know, positive developments in the UK, the Preston model. Um, so from 2011, uh, yeah, sort of in the aftermath of the financial crisis, Preston was in a total mess. 
some of its big investments fell through and it went and it decided to pursue something like the community wealth building model. Um, Aditya Chakrabarti, The Guardian, has a lovely podcast on it with some of its with one of its founders. Um, and they've achieved an enormous amount. They've doubled the percentage of spend from Preston Council, in this case, that takes place in Lancashire, in Preston's uh, 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 county. Um, and they seem to be having an, that, that density-building impact that they seek. So my question was, this, this is really interesting. Has anyone done this in developing countries? Or, and have they done it and not called it community wealth building? Or have they simply not done it? So just yeah, interested in in what people have got uh, to say about that, and a few a few suggestions and comments. But I'd be interested in more. The other piece on the UK was a, a reading a book uh, by Rob Hopkins called "From What Is to What If," and this is a book which is you know it's essentially trying to galvanise uh, a movement in the UK. Rob is one of the founders of the Transition Town movement, which has seen a whole load of communities in the UK pursue a low carbon transition at local level um, and the book has got you know rave reviews lots of famous names on the cover uh, and inside pages um, and he writes beautifully so um, his argument is that we are all frogs in the boiling pan of imaginative decline how about that for a sentence um, and that and the reason why that's a problem is that imagination helps us create longing which in turn drives change so his view is that the the sapping of our imaginations as communities, as individuals, as people, has taken away one of the main drivers of change in in Britain, which is his focus of attention. Um, why has that happened? Well, um, test-obsessed education system, which doesn't have time to kindle imagination because it's drilling kids for the next test. Um, he's really down on the... Uh, on, the internet, which he regards as kind of mental junk food. You're just constantly sort of grazing uh, without ever really nourishing yourself uh, in that deep imaginative sense, which he talks about. Uh, he even blames rising CO2 levels and has some evidence that um, CO2 is linked to a decline in imagination. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting thesis. Um, but I found it uncomfortable. I, 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 it made, I had lots of arguments with him in my head when I was reading the book. And a clash between my own internally between my heart, which wanted to think, this is great, yes, let's do it, let's all get imagine, you know, let's build the imagination, and my head, which was going mm, bar humbug, humph, and sort of coming up with criticisms. So one of the reasons why I was uncomfortable because there were so many unexamined assumptions in the book. So I did a little list, you know, I, I, somebody did it to me on how change happens, and it was a revelation where you try and describe the world that the author actually moves in. So it's not so much about the book, but how do they see the world? And in Rob's case, it seemed to be some things are good and some things are bad, and they're unexamined, right? So good is all things small. Good is meetings. Good is local. Bad is big. Bad is screens of any kind. Bad is meat. Bad is national. Now, I honestly think you can have big arguments with those, but he doesn't even you know, really argue the case for them. It's just assumed that we're all vegetarians, um, we all hate screens, and we all want to sit around in meetings in our communities. He also thinks that the community is an unalloyed good, you know, that the community is great. Well, sorry, um, a lot of people actually come to live in London, where I live, precisely to get away from their communities, because communities can be intrusive, prejudiced, small-minded... Uh, all sorts of bad things about communities. So, you know, I don't, 
I'm sceptical about um, just being quite so uncritical about communities. And then, yeah, and this is me going into how change happens mode. There's no theory of change here. The, the, what he's advocating and seeing is a sort of proliferation of experiments and pilots and projects, many of which are quite exciting. But he's got no real sort of interest in how those go to scale, how those scale up. He'll just think they'll somehow spread. And then these nasty, bad politicians from the nasty, bad, big government, big national governments will be dragged unwillingly into doing some good stuff. And I just think that's not good enough. You know, you've got to have a better idea than that. And I guess the, the penny dropped for me when in his last chapter, he actually um, does something which a lot of authors, you know, avoid doing or don't think of doing, which he says, OK, well, where have we seen this happen in the past? And he gave a few, and his big you know, motivator is the, um, the summer of 1968 in Europe in particular, where there was enormous uprisings and also a sense of kind of effervescence in the street and people were just having conversations and revelations and it was an, an enormous public fest festival of thinking. Um, he, he talks about Occupy, he talks about the Arab Spring, he talks about Tiananmen Square. He says these are the moments when imagination is unleashed. And he never says, well, hang on a minute, there's also something else in common between those is that they all disappeared and, and didn't leave any obvious trace. So he didn't talk about why they're so fleeting, what might need to change, whether that's a problem, what might need to change to make them have more permanent impact. So I was just kind of uncomfortable at the same time as I was you know, going, yeah, 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 for, for, for what he was talking about in terms of um, you know, some of the things we need to do to change, to, to bring play, to change our understanding of education, you know, all the different, he's got great chapters on it with lots of experiments and, 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 and examples of different ways to unleash the imagination. So I think it's a good book, read it, argue with it, learn stuff. And then the week ended with two power shifts posts, um, which is our project to, you know, um, uh, have more voices and more thoughts from different developing countries. Uh, the first one was from Beatrice Tulligan, a Filipina climate activist. And she wrote a piece called Our House is on Fire about Asia's climate emergency. And she looked at the state of air pollution, of fossil fuel use in Asia, and, and pointed out that Asia is really lagging behind the rest of the world at a symbolic level in that hundreds and hundreds of local and national governments have declared a climate emergency, hardly any of them in Asia. Uh, and not only are they not, is there not a sort of public recognition of the extent of the problem, Asia also has the biggest pipeline of new coal power stations. So she's saying, yeah, this is a major issue in, uh, for, for the continent. She's, as a Filipina, she's involved in various kind of social movements and grassroots organisations and women's movements to up the attention and up the priority given to responding to climate change. But... Um, and that they have to build the pressure to try and get Asia to catch up with what's going on in the rest of the world. Then the final piece of the week was um, the most mind-bending. Uh, it's a, a piece on decolonization and the future of African studies, in which Duncan Namanga interviewed somebody called Sabelo Doluvo Gacheni, who's a South African decolonization guru. And I must confess... This reminded me of my time in the 1980s trying to understand articles uh, by uh, Stuart Hall 
in Marxism today. Stuart had this way of writing, which was kind of very, very powerful, but also quite elusive. And uh, I had the same sensation reading uh, the interview with Sabello. Um, but he has some really interesting thoughts in there, which are really worth trying to pin down, I think. So he contrasts colonization as a historical event with a beginning date and an end date with colonialism as a power structure which endures even after the colonizers have been kicked out. He talks about the coloniality of power, knowledge and being. He's got a lovely um, uh, section on northern epistemologies. So yeah, epistemology is how do we know what we know and how they are running out of road and the sign that they're running out of the road is that they have no new nouns. I thought this was great. So instead of inventing new nouns for new ideas, we just add loads and loads of adjectives. So we take democracy or we take growth and we just add loads of green, inclusive, you know, whatever adjectives to it. And his conclusion is that um, Africa needs its own epistemology and it needs its own nouns, new nouns. I thought that was great. Um, and he finishes, yeah, there's lots in here and the, the, the piece I put up on the blog is itself a, a shortened form of a much longer essay, which, he, which I link to. Um, he says decolonization is not easy, even for the decolonizers, because the people who are leading decolonization, many of them have been to Western universities, many of them work in a, an academic structure that is massively colonial still, um, and that it's a process of lifelong relearning for them too. Uh, so no one can be smug and no one can rest on their laurels. It's an incredibly painful, difficult process. But we must still act and fight, is his conclusion, which I thought was great. So on that note, have a great weekend, everybody. And I'll give you another roundup this time next week.